Please turn your Bibles to Second uh, Kings chapter 4. We're jumping into the Old Testament again here tonight. And before we read, I want to give a just quick snapshot of the book of, book of Kings. It's two books in our Bibles. It's really one book in the original. And it's the story of really just how God's uh, kings failed. Failed epically. Failed so bad it all ends in exile. And the people uh, in exile are wondering, how did we get here? What happened? Where did it all go wrong? And 2 Kings is really telling that story. In the middle of the book, we have two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And their ministry is to declare God's word mostly to apostate kings, but also to a remnant people who are still trusting in the Lord in the midst of people who have gone astray and have worshipped false gods or have perverted the worship of the true God. And so the word that comes to us today is the word about Elisha's ministry to uh, this remnant people, and in particular, uh, this family. So, uh, please read with me uh, 2 Kings chapter 4. Starting in verse 8, going until verse 37. One day Elisha went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he'd called her, he stood, she stood before him. And he said, to, she, he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said to her, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, O my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon. And then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. And then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey And she said to her servant, Urge the animal on, and do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. 
So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? And he said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became, as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again, walked once back and forth in the house, and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he, picked, he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Before we discuss this text, let's, let's pray. Our Father, we want to hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us this evening. So we pray that he would speak to us clearly and plainly that your Holy Spirit would fill this place, uh, and that we would see uh, your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the great themes in literature, across countries, uh, is grappling with the reality and the tragedy of human suffering. And especially stories where uh, suffering begets even, even more suffering. It's just a steady, steady cycle of suffering that seems to never get better. I recently read the book, uh, Horse and His Boy, by C.S. Lewis. Maybe many of you have read it. Uh, if you haven't, you should. And that story is really a story of a suffering of a little boy named Shasta. And it starts out bad, and it, it seems to be continually getting worse. Uh, Shasta's a poor boy. He's raised by this mean fisherman who's not his father. Uh, he managed, and this, this fisherman sells him as a slave. He manages to escape. He gets chased by lions. He gets lost in a big city. He spends a night living in tombs, uh, comforted by just a little cat. Crosses a hot desert, almost dies, and just when you think he's about to find some help with some people who he can, he can be with, uh, he gets lost again. And at, at the, towards the end of the book, he says, which is really kind of 
been building the entire story, he says, I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. And his predicament, it calls out for a response. And C.S. Lewis has built the entire book up to this point. I'll save the response for later. But the text this evening, it also calls out for a response. We have a child who's died, a child of promise who's died. And the main point of this text is what is going to be the response of the man of God to the death of the child whose birth he promised. In the response of Elisha, the man of God, as he's called in the text, uh, he answers this question, as we're going to see, not not with a verbal um, proposition, but uh, instead he simply comes down from the Mount Carmel, and he walks into the place where the dead child is, and he uses his own body as a sign and an instrument of healing as he prays to God. And ultimately, we're going to see how Jesus takes up uh, this response to human suffering in his life, death, and resurrection. Resurrection. So ultimately, the purpose of, of the sermon tonight uh, is, is for me to try to convince you uh, from this text and the overall story of the gospel that Jesus is God's answer to suffering. Jesus the person, not, not an idea, uh, not, not a philosophical proposition, but Jesus the embodied God-man is who's alive today, is God's response uh, to human suffering. And we'll, we'll look at this in three headings. Uh, first, the man of God's promise leads to grief. Secondly, grief seeks the man of God on the mountain. And our third heading, the man of God comes down. The man of God's promise leads to grief. Our story starts in this village of Shunem, which is in the northern part of Israel. It's in the... Uh, tribe of Issachar and their, their portion in the promised land. And really the point of Shunem, it's basically nowhere. It's just obscure village somewhere up in the north in the middle of, again, northern kingdom. And if you've, if you've uh, read First Kings up to this point, you'll know the northern kingdom rejected the worship of God in the, in the temple and they created their own version of Yahweh worship. Uh, and so they are, they're an apostate people. So we got really nowhere village. Uh, we have a woman and a husband living there who are not named. So we got, we got kind of no one family living in nowhere village in the middle of apostate Israel. And, and the, the point here is just these are just ordinary people living in obscure towns uh, in, a, in a nation that's rejected God. And, and it should resonate with us, because that's, we're, you know, Indianapolis, as much as Pastor Ferris loves to champion our, uh, our proud history. You know, we're, we're just a little uh, group of people, really, in the middle of Indiana, middle of farm town. Um, and so this, this is, that, that's the point of, of the setting here. But this is a woman who fears the Lord. Unlike the kings who have consistently rejected the word of God, she makes, goes to great effort to make a place for God's word. God's man, where he can stay with them and rest and eat. So she carves out her home. She, she carves out a place in her heart, as it were, for the word of God. She, she's someone who's doing 
what you would expect God's kings to do, but are not doing. And she's rewarded for this. The, the, the prophet uh, does not uh, fail to notice uh, the devotion that she is showing by opening her home to him and his servant Gehazi. And so he asks, what do you want? She says, I, don't, I, I live with my people. Everything's basically, life is fine. I don't, I don't need anything. But he, he still gives her a gift and he promises her a son because she's barren. Now, uh, this is, when you, when you hear barren woman in the Old Testament, to the, to the Israelite reader, this is going to trigger all sorts of connections from the Old Testament. All the great stories in redemptive history start with a barren woman. And that's, that's the point here. The, the writer is putting you on a, on a biblical uh, trajectory He's, he's, pulling, he's expecting you to pull in your biblical imagination from everything that's gone before this and, and situate this woman on this narrative path. And how does he do that beyond just mentioning that she's barren? Well, the, the syntax of how Elisha promises a child is almost identical to how another child is promised to Sarah back in Genesis. Look at verse 15 of chapter 4. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Genesis 18.10 reads, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Very similar, right? And also, where they're standing is very similar too. The Shunammite woman is standing in the doorway as she hears this. Well, where is Sarah standing when she hears this? She's in the tent by the doorway, right? So it's not an accident that these, this syntax is used. The prophet is basically telling us in this text, something's going to happen here. Something's going to happen. In other words, God, God's promise that he will be with his people and in the, in the plan of redemption, that he's, he's moving history along, not just through random acts and, and confusing circumstances that make no sense, but he's putting even his obscure people on a path that mirrors the great saints of old walking the path of redemption. So this is where this woman is taken. Her devotion takes her to welcome the prophet the prophet promises her a life that's going to look like the great saints of old. But something happens that doesn't necessarily fit with the older stories, or does it? But at least in the immediate sense, it doesn't seem to make sense. The child dies. Now, we don't know it precisely how the child died. The point of the text isn't so much the method. The point is that the child died. Working out in the field, probably heat stroke maybe, but let's not get caught up in the details. The point is, child of promise dies. It's a terrible turn of events. So instead of, and, and the dead child's placed upon the bed that the woman had created for the prophet. And so this dramatic turn of events happens. The woman who opened her home to the prophet, opened her home to the word of God, was doing what all the kings in her country were failing to do, she makes a space, 
And what fills that space now? A dead child. This is, this is, this is not what she was expecting to happen. And, and you can see, if, if you were in her shoes, just what kind of questions you would be asking. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way of, of what the narrative is leading us to understand this woman's disposition. Dale Ralph Davis says, Does Yahweh make us glad only to increase the pain of life? Does He lift us up in order to drop us all the harder? What suffering are you experiencing right now? that you can really only understand as being there because of something that God brought into your life that initially came to you as a blessing. That's, that's, that's where the, the text is drawing us. What, it, could, it could be anything. It, did, did he bring marriage, but ten years later it's not what you expected? Did, did he give you kids, but, but you have prodigal children? Did you enjoy freedom from a besetting sin, but now that sin's come back with a vengeance, and it's almost as if it was worse than it's ever been before. We experience God's blessings, but often these blessings become the circumstance in which we experience intense suffering. To where we ask, if I hadn't had God's blessing, I wouldn't be in this spot. These are very very difficult questions that get to the core of why we're alive, what's, what is happening with our existence. And so with this grief, with this perplexity, our second heading for the evening, grief seeks answers on the mountain. Now, again, this woman is showing tremendous faith in what she does next. Because again, up to this point, all the kings in the northern tribes... When they suffered tragedy, they never sought the prophet. The prophets always show up with these northern kings uninvited. They're the ones spoiling the party. Remember Ahab. He's doing his thing, worshiping Baal. And here comes Elijah. He's like, who invited you, you troubler of Israel? Right? That's the attitude of the kings. Not this woman. Not this woman. She saddles her donkey. She's getting ready to go on a journey. She's going to go find the prophet, right? And that's, that's a point of application worth noting, right? Just because you're suffering doesn't mean you write off God's word, right? Just because God came and brought you wonderful things and things are not going as you thought, in fact, they're going worse than you thought, they're, they're, they're terrible, you, faith still seeks God, even in the midst of it. Even when we think that God is bringing these griefs into our lives. So she goes and she seeks uh, the man of God on Mount Carmel. And as she goes along, you'll notice she says a couple of times, all is well. What's, what's going on here? Why is she, uh, is she lying to these people? Is she, what's, what's happening? Well, it, she's not lying. She, she's more just, she's, she's saying, I don't owe it to these people to tell them the secrets of my heart right now. I'm, I'm going to God with my, with my problems. I just need to get there as fast as I possibly can. So I'm not going to, in one sense, I'm just, I'm just not going to engage in conversation until I get to where I'm going. It's, it's emphasizing the single-mindedness of, of her pursuit. 
And, and it's also putting her in line with uh, the psalmist. In Psalm 62, when he says, verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. Right, for, God, for God I wait in silence. I don't, I don't need to trouble myself with explaining myself to every passerby. I'm going to the man of God. So she goes with, with single-minded purpose to seek answers from the man of God. And where does she find him? And, and where is she going? She's going up to a mountain. So, and she's going up to Mount Carmel. So this should, again, the writers uh, of this book are telling us, a writer, I don't mean plural, I'm not, I didn't uh, study as much the uh, origin of this book. I think some people say Jeremiah wrote it. So when I say writers or writer, I slip of the tongue. Don't, uh, not engaging in textual criticism here. Um, going up to the mountain, Mount Carmel, two things. It's Mount Carmel, right? Elisha, he's a successor to Elijah. And Elijah, he did a pretty powerful miracle up on Mount Carmel. He challenged the uh, prophets of Baal to uh, a holy duel, as it were. And God answered in a, in, a, in a pillar of fire, consuming sacrifices that Elijah had prepared, proving that uh, God alone is God. And so this is the place where we're going back to. This is, this is going to be the place, of, in one sense, where God's going to, to uh, hopefully, from the woman's perspective, act again and, and, and provide deliverance. Also, she's going up a mountain and... Uh, it has to do with her son. And as we've already read, the, the, the author here has put her in the place of Sarah in promising her a child the way that God promised Sarah Isaac. Well, what happened to Isaac? Well, at some point, God told Isaac, God told Abraham, sacrifice your son Isaac on a mountain. And so you have this... this uh, this allusion, if you will, to, to that story being replayed here with the woman. The child of promise here has already been sacrificed. He's already dead. And so I need to go to the mountain of God where hopefully the way God revealed himself to Abraham when Abraham offered that sacrifice, maybe he will act similarly with this woman. So all these, all these biblical uh, flashbacks, if you were, should be coming into the mind of the reader as we watch the woman go up the mountain to meet the mount, meet the man of God. And once she gets there, what does she do? She basically lets the prophet have it. She lets him have it. She falls down at his feet and she says in verse 28, did I ask for a son? Did I not say don't deceive me? This is just raw questions. There's no holding back. This isn't a polite encounter. She's grabbing his feet, so much so that Gehazi, the servant, is, is going to push her away because it's startling. This is real grief. And she's really laying it at God's feet. Is this how you feel before God sometimes? Is this the tenacity with which you go to him with your deepest griefs? God, I didn't ask for this. This wasn't my idea to have a child. I was fine. The prophet brought this into my life. What are you doing? 
God has this woman in a spot where all she can do is fall on the ground and confront the man of God with her grief. So here's the woman. What's the prophet's reaction? Well, to understand his reaction, we need to see how the narrator describes what happens when he sees her coming. So look at verse 25 with me. And pay attention to the word look and see, these, these, these visual verbs here. Verse 25, when the man of God, uh, so she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. So the prophet sees her, he sees her, but he doesn't see what's going on when he sees her. He doesn't see what's happening. And he makes that very clear. The Lord has hidden this from me. Now, this is even more baffling still. Like, this is the man of God. And you'll read other parts of Kings where you got generals in, uh, talking about war strategy. And they're like, well, whatever we do, the man of God, he sees what we're doing behind closed doors. So God's going to fight for Israel. I mean... I'm paraphrasing how those verses go, but read the rest of Kings, and it is well known that God gives his vision to the man of God, and even the greatest armies in the world can't defeat it. Well, why isn't he giving a vision to the man of God here? The man of God sees the woman, but he doesn't know what's happening. To to really ratchet up this, this irony here of why the man of God doesn't see what's happening. It's also helpful to look at these verbs, look and see and understand how they've been used in, in redemptive history up to this point. Um, especially in the book of Genesis, these verbs of see and look and saw, uh, they often mark a turning point in biblical characters' lives and they prepare the reader to experience something about God's redemptive plans. We first um, see this in Genesis 1. God saw what he created on day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Saw that it was good. You see it in other places like uh, God comes down when people are building the Tower of Babel to see what they're doing. Same thing happens with uh, when the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham to go see what's happening in Sodom. This is God coming down to see what's going on. He's going to do something about it. But he also sees it, in, the word see plays a very tender, tender role in God's redemptive history. Hagar, after she's been discarded um, by her masters, uh, the Lord sees her weeping in the wilderness. In Genesis 16.3 it says, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. God sees the brokenhearted Hagar. Abraham and Isaac, again, this is the epic story that the writer has been subtly alluding to in in our text tonight. When Abraham offers his son Isaac, and right before he's about to plunge the dagger into his son to commit the sacrifice, God stops him. And as Abraham describes this God intervened 
he describes him as Yahweh Yira. That's, that's God who sees. Jehovah Jireh, that's how we often say it. And, and some of your translations will say the Lord who provides. And, but, but the word there is see, God saw. And he, he, he spared Isaac and he provided a sacrifice. And then the, 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 most, the penultimate uh, use of this verb in redemptive history comes Exodus chapter 2, verse 24 through 25. Right before he's about to raise up Moses as the deliverer for God's people, you got this little commentary right before Moses sees the burning bush and it says, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. And so, again, you're an Israelite reader reading this story, and you know that God sees His people. But the man of God, He sees the woman, but He doesn't see what's happening. Verse 27, The man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me. And so, again, all the perplexities that have come here is, is probably the most disturbing of all. Is, is God still the God who sees? That's what the narrator's asking here. Does he still see? And what follows is, is, is God's response. Before, before we get there, I want to tell a story because um, we have to grapple with this question. We, we can't just come to tragedy and try to make sense of it apart from what's about to follow in this story. And, and, and to kind of drive that point home, I want to tell you a story I had with someone, uh, a conversation I had this week with someone. I, I had a f- conversation with a friend who was really angry at the reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision. Okay? This person is, was generally pro-life, but, but she believes that um, she was very angry about there not being uh, an exception for, for rape. Uh, that in those circumstances, um, an abortion should be allowed. And I, I talked to her more about it, and she told me that the reason she held this position was because a, a relative of hers, uh, let's call her relative uh, Gina, um, I'm just making up that name for anonymity purposes, um, this relative of hers, Gina, was raped as a young girl, became pregnant, and had an abortion. And Gina was between the ages of 12 and 16 when, when this happened. And my friend told me with tears in her eyes, uh, Gina was in no position to take this child to term. She lived a rough life. It, it would have been even harder if she had to start being a mom as a teenager. And I'm terrified for my daughter at the thought that she could be raped as a girl and not only suffer the trauma and horror and shame of being raped, but of carrying that man's seed inside of her. Justin, how can any parent tell their little girl that they have to be a mom? How can anyone make a decision under those circumstances? And in that moment, she wasn't asking me for a, a morally correct answer. We know the morally correct answer in that situation. You, you intentionally killing an innocent child is not the solution to our tragedies. It's simply not. That's, that is very clear from the Scriptures. But our tragedies don't just need a moral answer. 
we don't just need the correct answer in our deepest tragedies. We need the law. We need to hear the law. It orients us. But in many cases, the law just confirms how tragic our lives truly are. How deeply people have offended us. How deeply they've sinned against us. The law just makes that even clearer. And so often, as with the case of my friend, her response to this strategy was, well, let's just, let's just make it go away. Let's just, let's just push away the tragedy just a little bit. We'll abort the baby. That'll, that'll fix it. And, and that's often what we do when we are confronted and we don't go deep enough. We just want to, let's just make it go away. I just, I just need it to go away. But the problem is your suffering's not going to go away. There are things that are going to happen in your life that are going to knock you on the ground. Your son's been killed in a car wreck. Parents suffered a heart attack. Someone overdosed on drugs. Your wife cheated on you. Your best friend's wife with five kids under the age of ten just died of cancer. What's God's response? What is he doing? In that moment on the mountain when Elisha doesn't see, he stands with all of us. We say, she's in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden her from me. We don't know. And Elisha, his first response, it's not an irrational one. He sends his messenger to lay a staff on the head of the child. And this Again, if, you're, if you know your biblical history, using the staff of the man of God, it's a pretty good solution. A lot of great miracles happen with the staff of the man of God. Moses raised the staff over the Red Sea to part it. Moses struck the rock to bring water in the wilderness. But the staff is not sufficient in these circumstances. Gehazi returns, having performed the sign, laying it on the child, and he says, the child has not awake, awoken. And so the story is building up to this point, heading number three. The prophet himself is Yahweh's response. So in this moment of crisis that exposes the limits of human capacity and understanding, even the limits of the prophet himself, God doesn't give a propositional response. The solution is for the man of God himself in the flesh to come down from the mountain and get as close as he possibly can to the tragedy. He comes down the mountain and he walks into the child's room. And what happens there? Verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. God saw. There it is. God saw. When he came into the room filled with death. And there the prophet symbolically offers his flesh, his breath, his body, laying it upon the child 
as one commentator put it, saying, may, may this boy be as alive as my body. That's, that's the meaning of, of this, this act here. Elijah's body is, is now the symbolic instrument of redemption in this story for the son of promise. In the same way, God offered a ram when he saw Abraham's faith on the mountain. The prophet offers his own body symbolically as the sacrificial lamb, as it were. And this, this miracle that Elisha performs, it's not the first time in, in the book of Kings that a prophet has raised someone from the dead. This miracle happened in First uh, Kings chapter 17 with Elijah. And the point of these two miracles is to say that the same Spirit of God that rested upon Elijah, he also rests upon Elisha. And these two prophets together, at this point in biblical history, are declaring that the Word of God is still with His remnant people. In the midst of apostasy, in the midst of pagan worship, God, by His Spirit, is still with His prophets, bringing resurrection life to His people in a dying land. And, and that's the story. That's the story. And yet, it's, people still die, right? This child was, who was resurrected, he died again, Right? And God's people still went to exile. For 400 years, God was silent. They were crying out with the psalmist, Psalm 13 that we sang this morning. Oh, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? And ultimately, these stories, the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, they prepare us for Jesus. 800 years later, Jesus of Nazareth steps into these men's ministry. He comes down from the highest of the mountains, as it were, from heaven itself, and he crawls into the womb of a teenage girl named Mary. There's no going back. He shuts the door behind him, as it were, as he takes on human flesh. We often forget at Jesus' moment of of conception. To all outward appearances, it looked like he was the result of fornication. So much so, much so that that was sufficient grounds for Joseph to, to file for a divorce. Jesus' first moments on this earth were literally in scandal and reputational catastrophe. He entered into that willingly. But his parents, just like every person who decides to stand with Jesus in this life, they bore that shame. And Jesus was born in squalor next to animals. But Mary knew what this meant. Mary knew that to all outward appearances and suffering and reputational shame, that this was God's response to human suffering. And she says, in Luke, 
My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has what? He has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. God still sees, and he sends Jesus. The Word became flesh. The Word that was just pictured, a shadow in the man of God who speaks the Word. The Word that Elisha and Elijah knew became flesh. And he walked in northern Israel not too far from Shunem, performing miracles. And Jesus didn't have to pray to heal people. He just healed them. He just spoke three times. And all of these miracles that he performs when they're narrated by the gospel writers, they, they are referring to this passage in all the details. Luke chapter 7, when he commands the dead boy to arise, it's the boy, the only son of a woman. When Jesus heals uh, the ruler of the synagogue's daughter, he walks into a room and shuts the door behind him. And when Jesus, when he heals the friend of two women that he adored, they are clinging to his feet, asking the very same questions that the woman was asking on the mountain. Lord, if you'd only been here, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus, he steps into the shoes of Elisha, weeping at the tomb of Lazarus as they tell him, come and see our dead friend. He sees and power flows out of him bringing resurrection healing. In his life, Jesus declares by the very fact of being born into this world, by weeping with his people, by staring into the suffering that he is the God who sees and he is God's answer to human suffering and death. And in the end, all of his association with us, all of his taking our sorrows and bearing them upon himself and entering fully into the rooms with our dead children, that leads him to the cross where he spreads himself all over our death stretching out his hands and feet over all of our sin and shame. As God nailed him there with all of our sin, all of our evil, all of the cause of this mess that we live in. And the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus' real death, on a real cross, at a real point in human history, Jesus creates new life. He reverses the curse. He is the answer to our suffering. C.S. Lewis, um, how does he respond to, to Shasta's statement? I'm the, I'm the most unfortunate boy in the whole world. Well, right after Shasta says this, he's walking on this mountain path and it's foggy and he can't see and he hears this voice. This voice this, this calming 
deep voice, and it's the voice of Aslan, the lion, who's the Christ figure in these stories. Shasta can't see him, but he hears him. He can feel his warm breath as he walks in darkness, and Aslan proceeds to tell him. So beautiful. He was the lion who chased him. He was the little cat who slept with him by the tombs. He was the lion who blew his little boat to that mean fisherman to be raised. The lion was writing the story of Shasta through Shasta's suffering. And so, in conclusion, the Shumanite woman tells us that we experience resurrection life where? Where do we experience it? It's in our suffering. In our suffering, we experience the man of God who suffered with us. That's where you find life. Very rarely in this life do you find Jesus on the mountaintop. You often find him in the valley. You don't find resurrection life day after day unless you experience death day in and day out. And that's the promise of Jesus, that in the world you will have tribulation. And that's what Paul exhorts us to when he says, I want to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You don't get resurrection power unless you're dying. So Jesus is calling you from your place of suffering, from your place of death, to cling to his feet. Take him to all the places where you're dying. Take him to all your sorrows. He wants to come in. He wants to see. He wants to dwell with you. He is the man of God with us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in the fullness of time, you sent forth your Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so as your children, we cry to you, how long, O Lord? Help us to know the presence of the Lord Jesus in our midst as we suffer day by day, that we might trust in him as the final word to the Satan as the final word to evil, as the final word to our sin. Lord, we pray that we would rest only in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would know his power today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.